Okay, welcome folks. Happy spring. Does it feel like that? How many of you got hit with that crazy wind yesterday? Like, so yeah, everyone. So it was like region wide. How many of your fences failed? Because mine did not either. Thank you. That has nothing to do with the sermon. Just thought I would share this. We are starting a new series called Nameless. Uh, I've been wanting to share this with you for some time. I really don't have any sermons for this series. I just have some thoughts because these stories uh, have just impacted me and really meant a lot to me personally. And uh, so these are stories about people, in particular women. I'm zooming in on the women because there are so many women of both the Old and New Testament who have these incredible, amazing stories of faith and faithfulness, as we'll see today. But they, we don't know their names. But we do know the name of their character. And so we'll get to that toward the end of the message. And it's really stories of grace for the brokenhearted. And so hopefully, um, hopefully you know your name. But if no one else ever does, God does. He knows who you really are. And what the name of your character is as well. So the motivation of the series is to help us to understand the character of Christ. And to become more like Christ in our faith. And we're going to start today with a story about a nameless woman who gave her very last. In 1, Corinthians, uh, 1, Corinthians, 1 Kings chapter 17. Chapter 17. And so let me give you a little bit of background on this story. The year is 873 B.C. And it has only been 130 years since King David was enthroned and consolidated both the northern and the southern kingdoms. Not long after his son Solomon's reign, the kingdom was split by civil war by Solomon's sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And the northern kingdom has had, ever since then, a series of really wicked kings. Israel was ruled after David by really wicked people. And there is a man here in this story who's the worst of those kings. He's the worst. And his name is Ahab. We learn in 1 Kings 16. And Ahab was, again, uh, he is consolidating the territories just like his father David, his forefather David did of the northern and the southern kingdoms. His rival king from history, Shalmaneser III, recorded in his chronicles that Ahab was a fierce warlord with a powerful military. And he expanded Israel's influence and territory in the region and built many palaces and public buildings used for civic duties, successful by every measurement, except the most important one. Ahab is an incurable idolater, a rebel king. Idolatry came back then in two forms. The first kind was to just add a god or gods to your religion. That's called syncretism. That's when you sync other religions with yours. That's, syncreti that's syncretism. Uh, but the second way was Ahab's idolatry of choice. And that is actually to replace the God of your nation with all of these regional or a regional deity. And that's super bad. That's a super bad form of idolatry. It's all bad, but this is the worst, and he chooses the worst. So Ahab's God of choice was the ever-popular Baal. And his cosmic mistress, Asher, who was the favorite goddess of Jezebel, Ahab's 
mistress or his love interest in the story. And so he built Asherah poles or Asherah totems and erected them in Israel. And God had all he could take of this situation. So he sends a man. And this man, this character, his name is Elijah. Now, Elijah's name is a compound uh, term, uh, which means my God is Yahweh. El means God. Jah or Yah or Yahweh means Yahweh. It's God. It's the Hebrew God. And so this guy looks exactly the way you might think an Old Testament prophet would look. I mean, he does. His calling card, his badge of identification is he has this super weird haircut, like this kind of shaved head, the way the uh, desert Hebrew prophets did, and that he has this camel skin cloak and this super wide leather girdle or this belt, and he's got this gnarly grizz, you know, like this beard, and he eats bug sandwiches, <laughs> and he lives out in the desert. He's the precursor to John the Baptist, and when he shows up, Everyone knows, oh, that guy must be a Hebrew prophet. <laughs> okay? Bold, fearless, unflinching. Elijah walks right up to the powers that be. He walks right up to Ahab and prophesies and brings him the word of the Lord. First Corinthians, uh, First Kings 17.1. I really want to go to First Corinthians today. Chapter 17, verse 1, it says this. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, or from Tishbe in Gilead, said to King Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And so why is this important? This is important because Baal and Asher, those two would-be goddesses, they are the gods of fertility. And they are thought to bring the rains and the growth cycles of harvest time. And so God is confronting this idolatry right at its source. He punches them right in the nose and says, okay, if you think your gods are so wonderful, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shut the heavens. I'm going to cut off your supply and we'll see who the real God is. So the heavens do shut and the rivers go dry and the fields wither until God gives Elijah the word. Three years later, we learn in chapter 18. So Elijah is then told to go to a town called Kareth. And God does a really interesting thing. Something that I find is kind of a pattern with God. God leads him to provision. He leads him to a place where God is going to provide by flying in all these ravens. And these ravens' mouths are filled with meat and food. And he eats the food from the ravens. Would you eat that food? If you were starving, you would. But I would have to choke it down. With lots of prayers of thanksgiving. And then there's a little babbling brook there. There's a little freshwater brook. And he drinks the fresh water. Until the famine gets so bad. The drought gets so bad. The brook so bad. The brook dries up. And he has to move on. And God tells him to move on. In verse 7 we start there. Sometime later the brook dried up. Because there had been no rain in the land. Verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath. In the region of Sidon, this is a pagan territory, and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he did. He went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? Notice this. 
as she was going to get it. I mean, she just goes. He called, oh, also, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a flask or in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and wait to die. Elijah said to her, oh, don't be afraid. Go home and do just as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. Just obedience, boom, gone. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And so I think from this story, you and I learn a few lessons, a few lessons about the nature of faith and, and what kind of character of faith you and I need in the Christian life. And I want to I point those things out to you today. The first one is this. The widow was responsive to God's word. I kind of like, in the story, just her knee-jerk response. Somehow she just knows, probably by the way he's dressed, or maybe by reputation, that's the man of God, and the man of God has just asked me to go get him some water, which is a resource very scarce in that arid, drought-prone world. And this is a famine, this is a drought. So she just goes. And notice that right away, he says to her, oh, and bring me some food. Bring me a little cake. Last night was my birthday. And my kids brought me a little cake. And it was great. But it wasn't like the last that they had, right? But this is it. This is all she has. And here's what we learn. Is God uses means to do miracles. God is going to meet her needs through the prophet by her meeting the prophet's needs. In other words, you take care of God's business and he will take care of yours. Our suffering, loss, despair, the anxiety that we experience when we face circumstances that are beyond our control, beyond our resources, beyond our knowledge, or even beyond our faith to handle it. Those situations condition us for responsiveness. I want to say it again. All of that conditions us for a heart of responsiveness. This woman, now imagine the despair. Try for a second to imagine how much heartbreak she is going through. This is the human element that's just embedded in the story. She has probably just lost her husband. She is a widow. She doesn't have a husband. She's on her last resources, which means it hasn't, it, it hasn't been too long since she's lost him. And now she has nothing left. That husband in this culture was her meal ticket because women couldn't work. And so the pain and the loss of her husband and also just their income. Imagine the unspeakable despair of not being able to feed your children. Man, I went through that years ago as a young church planter and I was doing everything I knew how to do. Just working the church and working some jobs. And I could not, this was many years ago when I was in my early 30s, I just couldn't put food on the table. Some days. So I would go down to the Coeur d'Alene Food Bank 
and I'd stand in line. And when you stand in line at the Coeur d'Alene Food Bank, people aren't like cheery and meeting each other and talking. It's eerily silent because everybody is just kind of carrying a shame because they feel like they can't provide and that's why they're there. And it was really hard to go there two days a week. It was difficult to look into the face of my children and say, guys, I can't provide food this week. That was really hard. And imagine her despair. She wants to provide for her family and this is it. She, this is it. When she's done here, she's done. So the human element to the story is something that resonates with each of us. And the emptiness of our cupboards or our emotional reserves can condition us to be very responsive when God comes calling. Sometimes it's harder to hear God when our coffers are full or our pantry is well stocked. We must take pains to seek God, extra pains to seek God in times of prosperity. Here's what times of prosperity and comfort do for us. They save us from carrying a psychological weight that we could otherwise not carry. Nobody can just have an endless chain of calamities. Do you know some people like that? Most of you are shaking your heads. Yes. We all know somebody whose life just seems to be an endless chain of calamities. One calamitous event after another. But God gives us actually time to breathe. Time to rest from suffering and difficulty. And so my comfort brings me relief from what would otherwise be an impossible psychological burden. But it doesn't really do much to condition me to hunger and thirst for God as my all in all. Think of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, here's what's so cool about the story. She has no idea that her faith, that her interaction with Elijah, she has no idea that her story is going down in history and is going to be recorded in this book. The the most famous book in history, the book that has been published more than any other by far. And, and is available now in, not only in print, but electronically, on the internet. She would have no idea what any of that was. And she was part of Jesus' very first sermon in the synagogue. And Jesus goes into this synagogue, and what's striking about this is he's, he has sort of launched, and his ministry has gone famous. Jesus is famous, spreading around the Galilean re- region. And scores of people are coming in, to hear from him, pagans and Jews alike. And they are filling up the hillsides to listen to the master. And Jesus goes into the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth. And he quotes from Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 60. And he says, today, this uh, prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And they all go, oh, yay, Jesus is wonderful. Until he says this. Do you remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 17? He doesn't say that, but he says, remember the widow of Zarephath? There were lots of hungry, starving widows in Israel, but Elijah in his time wasn't sent to anyone, any of them. He was sent to the one in the pagan territory. And they go, what? So Jesus actually refers to the story to tell them about his mission. My mission is not to just come to save you, My mission is to come to save all those people you think are unworthy of God. And so she, her story, is commemorated here in this text for the world to see. And the story is that she was responsive to God. She was responsive to the prophets. She just knee-jerked. She went and did what the prophet said to do until he asked for bread, her last meal. Number two, the widow had shaky faith. 
So she is responsive, but she doesn't have perfect faith. Look at what she does. Uh, She says, as surely as Yahweh, the Lord your God lives. Now, what does that statement tell us? Two things. One, she believes that Yahweh lives. She believes that Yahweh is God. But she believes that he's Elijah's God. She doesn't believe that he's her God. She probably believes in a false God at this point. And so, but she has faith that God has spoken to him, but now she has to give the second request for her last meal. She has to give it context. She has to say, Elijah, Mr. Prophet, uh, you don't understand. What I have left in my pantry, what I have left in the cupboard or in the fridge, that's, that's it. And I've come down here to get this firewood and collect these sticks so I can make this last meal, feed it to my child, and we could just sort of curl up in a ball and die of hunger, wait to die of hunger. And he says, oh, well, go do that. Don't die of hunger, but go, go make, but make me something first. Take care of God's business first. And later on, when her son falls ill, what does she say? She says, do, do, did you mean to come down here and actually just reveal my sin and then kill my son? You see, sometimes her faith is very strong and she's very responsive. And sometimes she doubts and she doesn't know what to do with the situation that she's presented with. I had uh, two periods in my life when uh, I really struggled and I had really shaky faith. And God had to grow me through those, those seasons in my life. One of them actually was when I was in college and I had decided I was going to be a professor and I wanted to get my PhD. And so I decided on a major that we, back then we used to call them a pre-sem degree. Pre-sem degree is just pre-seminary. So I just tried to get, do the hardest Bible degree that I could. And it was biblical literature, studying the Bible as an ancient piece of literature, which was really fun. I enjoyed it. But it was a really hard degree. And I just remember about midway through that program, in my bachelor's program, I had a crisis of faith. Because I had questions that I didn't have answers for. And so I remember going to God repeatedly, praying, fasting, asking God, what is the answer to these dilemmas, these, these things that are causing me to be in a crisis of faith? And at the end of that period, this was God's answer. And it came through Dr. Tony Evans in a sermon. I was listening to him on the radio and he was preaching on the book of Job. And here's what he said. He says, this is God's answer to you. Even when you don't know why, if you do know me, then that's all you need to know. And I mean, it hit me like a revelation. I mean, it just stuck in my heart. And I thought, that's the answer. God is the answer. God is the answer. And so right then and there, I grew through that crisis of faith. The next crisis of faith that, that, I happened, uh, that happened to me was actually that small church plant that I told you about earlier. I was leading a spectacular failure. And I was working hard. I mean, you've never seen anybody work harder at just trying to launch something off the runway than, than, that, than that. And then I was working several little jobs and my wife was working several little jobs and I was barely able to foot, put uh, food on the table or pay our mortgage. And it was really, really difficult. And I got angry at God sometimes. And I felt like a failure, like I had failed God. And I felt like a total loser, like I had lost precious kingdom resources 
in something that just was supposed to go well but didn't pan out. And I felt shame and for a while wanted nothing to do with any of it because I thought God was judging me for failing. That's how I felt. But it turns out that God was taking me on that little detour that was not on my schedule, but it was on his in order to burnish my faith. Because when I felt that my faith was the most shaky and and it was harder to believe that God was leading me and guiding my path, that's when God was doing his greatest work. And I I learned that lesson and I came through it and the Lord saved me through it. And she is having moments. Remember, this is a three-year period of time just compressed in a little text. And so she has times when she has boundless faith. She trusts the Lord. And she has other times like this where her faith is kind of shaky. Number three, the widow had sacrificial faith. I mean, it doesn't take a guy with an expensive seminary degree to pull this one out of the text. I mean, this is just, it's just there. It's right on the surface. It jumps out at you. She says, I am going to give to God and the man of God and the work of God. I'm going to give him my last. And then God's promise to her is that won't be your last. It's just an amazing story. And her kindness cost her, at least initially. And Jesus tells us the same thing in the New Testament. If you're going to give your life to the kingdom, it's going to cost you. But the cost you pay right now is nothing compared to the reward that God is going to give you off in the future. Matthew 10, 39, he says, whoever finds their life, they'll actually lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What is Jesus saying there? If the central pursuit, if the driving motivation and pursuit of your life is you to find yourself, look, don't go out there to find yourself because you're not out there. You're not. Jesus says if if the driving force and motivation of your life is to find you and find yourself, you will actually, at the end of your life, you will have learned that you lost your life. But if you will lose your life for me and for my sake and my kingdom, at the end of your life, you will find your life. Because that is the key. Chapter 19 of Matthew says a similar thing. Jesus said, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. What Jesus is saying this is, yeah, there are some rewards in this life for sacrificing and giving to the kingdom of God and giving yourself for the kingdom of God, but you have no idea what God is storing up for you. Yet you cannot fathom what God is storing up for you in his eternal kingdom. And so Jesus promises... Jesus' promises regarding sacrificial faith for the kingdom of God. They teach us to keep God where God's supposed to be, on the throne, and no other God. Jesus' promise regarding sacrificial faith for the kingdom of God teach us to reorient our lives around the kingdom of God. Seek first, Jesus said, the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be withheld from you as well. No, that's not what he says. He says they will be added to you the eternal weight of glory that you and I are to inherit outshines every suffering that we could face. It teaches us to store up treasure in heaven, which is permanent and lasting. I like the way Paul says it in Philippians 3. He says, what is more, listen to this, I consider everything, what's everything? His rabbinic education, his lineage in Abraham, uh, his, his status as an up-and-coming student of the great Gamaliel, 
as the next hot thing in the rabbi community. He says, I consider all of that burned in a dumpster fire. That's my translation. He says, it's all a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish, garbage, that I may gain Christ. My mama used to say this, and if she said it once, I know she has said it a thousand times. I'm not West Virginian, so I can't say it exactly with her accent, but she used to say this, honey, you can't outgive God. And I love it. I used to love it when she would tell me that you can't outgive God, and she lives by that. I know she does. And this, this woman discovered that. You can't outgive God. Number four, the widow's faithfulness was put to the test. Now, for such a short story that covers just three short years, there are a lot of twists and turns here. She does what she can. Ultimately, her son succumbs to death. He gets sick and he gets worse and worse. Let's pick up the story here. I'm going to pick it up in verse 17. So she's living a successful life. I mean, God has really come through for her. And God is really providing the flour and the oil she needs for that day. And then tragedy strikes. It says sometime later on, uh, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room and where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord uh, from your mouth is the truth. See the development of her faith. But you can't get this kind of burnished faith without trials, without suffering, without loss, without a challenge. And so this challenge does come to her doorstep. At first, this is a tragic setback, heartbreaking loss. But in the end, she follows the prophet's instructions and God raises him to life and her faith, her faith transforms into joy. The widow's faith is rewarded. And that's really the next point. It's not on your outline, but really God rewards her faith and God rewards our faith as well. God shows us her faithfulness in this story. And sometimes when you think that you're not making any difference whatsoever, sometimes when you think that no one is watching or no one is listening and you're just kind of talking to a brick wall, God surprises you with what he does. Uh, like I said, yesterday was my 48th birthday. I feel every day of that. And I got just the greatest gift yesterday and I want to share it with you. I, I can't read all of what they say but uh, instead of giving me like a shirt or some gift or something like that, uh, Carrie tasks all the children uh, to write me a letter, a personal letter from their heart and answering the question, uh, why do you love daddy? <laughs> and so the letters 
are absolutely precious to me. And as I read through them last night, I just got choked up and I had to stop and pause several times because I realized a couple of things. One, my kids are hilarious. They're just, they bring me so much joy. They're so funny. And each one of the letters reveals really kind of something quirky about their personality. Like Carly's uh, is every line, every sentence is written in a different color and it's just covered in like hearts and kisses and it's just, I love you, I love you, I love you for everything, you know? It's just this gushing heart of love for her daddy. And then uh, Tyler's is economical. <laughs> Three sentences, a short paragraph, and when I read it, I just wanted to burst into tears because it is the most meaningful thing anyone's ever said to me. It was just so powerful. And then uh, Logan is our family comedian. So he's our 13-year-old. And Logan's is very formal and forensic. It starts, I'll just read you this part. Dearest father. <laughs> and then he just lists matter of fact, just factually all the things that are amazing about me. And then uh, Hayden's is so good. I love, I am going to frame all of these. But Hayden's, what, the, what I love about his is that his letter looks like every Christmas list he's ever written to Santa Claus. Like, but it's not asking for stuff. It's just saying, hey, this is why I love you. Bullet, bullet, bullet. Just bullets all the way down. And I love it. And Carrie's just tore my heart out. So great. And I love these. And I'm going to frame them. And I'm going to tell you why. Because what they also revealed to me is not just my kids' quirky personalities. They also revealed to me that uh, they see me as a faithful person. Like this widow. Not perfect. Sometimes my faith is kind of shaky. Sometimes they see me struggle. And I've gone through some stuff recently and they watch me walk through it. But here's what they say. Dad, you're faithful. And, and, and I had no idea that they were seeing all of that. And so what I want to encourage with you with today is to listen to the voice of the woman who has no name from 873 B.C., who speaks to us down the quarter of time. And her invitation is an invitation to faithfulness. Not perfect faith, faithfulness. You stick it through. You walk with God and sometimes it's hard and sometimes you don't know how you're gonna carry it and walk another step, but you do. And you're a witness of Christ's character and Christ's faithfulness to others. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we are just uh, so impacted by this story this woman speaks to us and we don't know her actual designation but we do know the name of her character and her name is faithful and god we want that to be our name today and when we walk out that door today we want to have a commitment in our heart that we are going to walk with you and to pursue you and to know you come what may Will you make that commitment right now in your spirit to the Lord? And we do, Lord. We make this commitment to you today. God, we pray that in our lives you would be glorified. That you would be glorified when, in times of prosperity, when times are good and the paychecks are rolling in and we can give sacrificially and, and do all of that for you. But Lord, we also pray that in times of scarcity and difficulty, we just pray you would give us that same stick to just that same commitment, rock-solid faithfulness. 
In Jesus' mighty name, amen.